Would you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Well, please be seated. Well, this week we began our Theology on Tap series at New Realm on Island Park Brewing. It was a fantastic first evening. We're doing it every Wednesday in October at 7.30 p.m. They have a kind of a side room that's part of the building, but sort of off to the side. And uh, it was fantastic. There were 50 or so people. Uh, we had a great discussion. We had people just wander in who were asking what we were doing, and they stayed for it. We had a group of people just painting in one corner, uh, and they just stayed the whole time. And then we had a group of folks who were just eating dinner with their family who also stayed. And so it was great to be in this environment where we could ask tough questions about who God is, and in particular, we we're talking about, is the Bible fake news? And there were people there from all different aspects or all different um, places in their belief, from non-belief to fully on board with who Jesus is. And it reminded me a bit of a story I heard about a skeptic, a man who really didn't believe in who Jesus was and didn't believe in the Christian faith. And so he decided one day he would see if God would reveal himself to him if he would ask him what the purpose of life is. So one day he lifted up his head towards the heavens and he said, God, if you're really up there, tell us what we should do. Well, much to his surprise, a loud booming voice came back to him and it said, feed the hungry, house the homeless, establish justice. Well, the skeptic was alarmed by these ideas, more so than God actually speaking to him. And so he sheepishly replied, just testing. <laughs> Me too, replied the voice. Sometimes, sometimes the simplest answer is the most difficult to swallow. The simplest answer is the most difficult to swallow. And in our gospel reading today, we see this very thing play out with John the Baptist. People ask him, what should we do? And he gives them a very simple answer. And I think it's pretty hard for people to swallow, not just them, but also us today. We're continuing our sermon series called A Transformed Life. And last week, we saw that a transformed life is one that sets its hope on God. And proof of this can be found in how we handle our money. Do we give generously to God of what we've been given? Have we surrendered our whole life to Jesus, even our bank accounts? You see, as I said last week, our bank account often reveals far more about our faith than our church attendance does. Our bank account often reveals far more about our faith than our church attendance does. Well, this week, we're continuing on with this theme of a transformed life. And what we see is that a transformed life is one that bears fruit in keeping with repentance. One that bears fruit in keeping with repentance. So let's turn to the scriptures. You can find them on the handout you were given on the way in, or you can follow along on the screen or pull out your Bible app on your phone. Or if you have a, a Bible, um, an actual book, then pull that out as well. And let's turn to Luke chapter 3 beginning at verse 3, and see what God would say to us. And I just want to ask three simple questions today. I want to ask of this story, where is it happening? Why is it happening? And what is being said? So first of all, where is it going on? Well, verse 3, we read this. And he, that's John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist is down by the River Jordan. Now, there are some more lush parts of that, but a lot of it goes through wilderness. If you've ever been to Israel, I did a few years ago, you'll be in this very barren place where you'll have this river winding through this wilderness. And it's actually starkly 
very beautiful, something very stunning about it. And John's there. And who is John? Well, John is the cousin of Jesus. And we've not heard much about him for 30 years. We heard about him at the birth of Jesus, and we've not heard much about him since. But he is the one who has been uh, given the job of coming to prepare the way for Jesus. He is, in fact, what some people would say is the last Old Testament prophet. Yes, he's in the New Testament, but really he's acting very much in the realm of an Old Testament prophet, preparing the way for the Messiah. And what he's proclaiming at this point is this baptism of repentance. Now, if you're wondering what repentance is, it's simply turning away from your sin and turning towards God. It's walking in the other direction than a direction that you are heading, turning towards God. And what he's saying is that this baptism is not somehow magic, that just because you're baptized, you will then be cleansed of your sin. He's saying it's a sign of your repentance. It's a sign of what's going on in your heart. Now, it's interesting that we don't just need to look to the Bible to see that this actually happened or what was going on. Josephus, a Jewish historian at the time and someone who wrote his own histories as well, said this of John the Baptist. He was a good man and had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice towards their fellows and piety towards God, and so doing to join him in baptism. In his view, this was a necessary preliminary if baptism was to be acceptable to God. So we know that this happened. We know what John was doing. And he's preparing the way for Jesus as prophesied by Isaiah. Look at verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, Kent Hughes explains it well. He said that this prophecy reflects the widespread custom that when an eminent ruler was about to visit a city, the citizens would construct a smooth, broad road so he could enter the city with due pomp and dignity. A modern equivalent is the Champs-Élysées in Paris, first used with great effect by Napoleon and his armies. But Isaiah's vision was far grander. The highway was not simply a grand entrance to a city, but a great thoroughfare through a mountainous wilderness. He saw mountains flattened and valleys filled in so that a broad superhighway could be made ready for the Messiah King. The point we must not miss is this. The great highway John was building was one of repentance. The Baptist was saying, men, not your roads, but your lives. He's preparing people to encounter Jesus, the Messiah. So this is what he's doing, or where he's doing it. Why is he doing it, though? We'll look at verses 7 through 9. John says to the crowd that come out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Doesn't sound very welcoming, does it? Try that out next time you have some guests over to your house. You brood of vipers. John's here to warn the people. You see, judgment is coming for all people right then and also today. We are all going to face judgment for our sin. And what he's saying to them is that their heritage will not save them. Look at what he says next. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Many of the Jews were simply relying on their heritage of being born a Jew 
to say, well, that means I'm going to enter the kingdom of heaven one day. When I die, I'll, I'll be in heaven with the Father. But he was saying, no, not your heritage. That will not save you. There needs to be fruit in keeping with repentance, lives that have been transformed. Now, it relates to us today, perhaps, in some of the things that we might say. We might say, well, you know, I was baptized as an infant. You know, surely that means I'm going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, baptism is a sign, isn't it? Remember that, of something else that has hopefully happened. And if there hasn't been repentance, there'll be no salvation. I was reminded of this a few weeks ago. I was in the children's family service, which happens at 1045 each Sunday in the traditional church. I like to call it half an hour of mayhem because <laughs> it's crazy in there. Um, but I normally escape alive, which is good. And that week I was teaching with Marlo and we were doing this skit about what it means or how we are saved. And I was saying to the kids, well, well, guess what? I've got a grandfather who was a priest. Not only was a priest, he was a missionary in China with my grandma. Therefore, I'm saved. And Marlo said, well, no, it doesn't quite work like that. And I said, well, well, try this. I've got a father who was a missionary to Malaysia with my mother. And they've served in the ch church for decades now. I'm going to be okay, right? He said, well, it doesn't really work that way. So I said, well, hold on, hold on. I've been to seminary. I'm a priest. All right, I've got one of these things to prove it. I said, surely I'm going to be okay. He said, well, no, 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 it doesn't really work that way. It's have you given your heart to the Lord? Do you know him and does he know you? None of my heritage is going to save me. It's not going to save you either. Just because you had parents who went to church, just because you had grandparents who are believers, that will not save you. And neither will your church attendance. You might come to church every other week and think, well, that's enough. No, it's about a relationship with the Lord. Does he know you? Only genuine faith, a faith that bears fruit, will save us. So there's the where, there's the why, and now let's talk about the what, verses 10 through 14. If we've encountered the living God and surrendered to him, then there will be a difference in how we live and in our ethical behavior and how we handle our money and our possessions. You see, spiritual transformation requires changing how we view our stuff. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, puts it this way. When people asked John the Baptist what they should do to bear the fruit of repentance, he told them first to share their clothes and food with the poor. Then he told the tax collectors not to collect and pocket extra money. Finally, he told the soldiers not to extort money and to be content with their wages. No one asked John about money and possessions. They just asked him what they should do to bear the fruit of of spiritual transformation. Yet all his answers relate to money and possessions. These two things were of such high priority, so close to the heart of what it takes to follow God, that John couldn't talk about spirituality without talking in terms of how we handle our money and possessions. Remember last week how I shared there are 2,350 verses in the Bible about money. Twice as many as there are about faith and prayer combined. Think about that for a minute. Twice as many as there are about faith and prayer combined. Clearly, the Lord wants to get our attention about how we handle our money and our possessions. And John is in a long line of prophets who is willing to go there, to that uncomfortable place of talking about finances. You see, it's not enough for us to say, I follow Jesus, and then ignore the needs of others. Not enough. As the Apostle James says, faith without works is dead. And so John gives the people some answers that might surprise them. 
First of all, he talks about their possessions. Verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. I wonder, we asked this question last week, but I want to ask it again. Is there something that you have bought that you could not give up for the sake of another person or for the sake of the kingdom? Is there something that you've bought that you could not give up for the sake of another person or for the sake of God's kingdom? This was clearly an issue for the crowds. It's why John speaks about it. But I think it's also an issue for us today. What if God asked you to give away some of your stuff, especially the stuff that's important to you? And probably not a tunic, all right? I don't know how many tunics you guys have. You might say, well, I, I could give away a tunic, all right? Yeah, you could give that away, right? And you might be thinking, well, maybe the equivalent, maybe a coat. I could give away a coat because I've got four of those, Jonathan. I can do that. And not a bad thing to give away a coat, but I think of, think of it more as something that you feel like you need to keep. All right, maybe you're storing it up just in case something happens and you need to spare one of these. Maybe it's a television or it's a laptop that you own. You've got a couple of them just in case one breaks or you've got an old cell phone you don't want to give away just in case. Or you've got a washer or a dryer that you're just hanging on to. Or you've got a couch or a bed or even a, a second car or a third car you don't really need or even a room in your house that's going empty or an apartment that you don't really use or a second or third home that you don't really use. Are you willing to let others use those things or even to give those things to other people if God asks? You know, as I made that list, I thought about my 25 years in ministry and every single one of those things has been given to me at one stage or another or shared with me because someone was generous enough to do that. Even a home. When I was first a youth pastor, a family bought a house and said, you can stay in it for free uh, for as long as you need to and be our youth pastor at our church. And what an incredible blessing, right? What an incredible blessing. Is that the kind of generosity that you're living with towards others? Most of us have a serious problem which is that we're addicted to our stuff. You know, I've talked before about how America is the only place that really has this explosion of storage units, right? Everywhere you go, there's a storage unit. And if, they, if you buy a piece of land, some financial advisor will probably tell you a good thing to build is storage units. You'll make a lot of investment. The rest of the world doesn't have this issue. They don't really store up stuff like we do. But we have a real issue with materialism here. Randy Alcorn writes this, many of us have never known what well, it is to not be materialistic. This is why we so desperately need to read the scriptures, to grapple with these issues, bring them to God in prayer, discuss them with our brothers and sisters. If we were to gain God's perspective, even for a moment, were to look at the way we go through our life, accumulating and hoarding and displaying our things, we would have the same feelings of horror and pity that any sane person has when he views people in an asylum endlessly beating their heads against a wall. Alcorn continues, for years the argument against materialism among Christians has been that materialism is wrong. Materialism is wrong. But since this argument has proven itself ineffective, perhaps it's time for a new approach. Materialism is stupid. In fact, materialism is insane. Seeking fulfillment in money, land, houses, cars, clothes, boats, campus, hot tubs, world travel and cruises has left us bound and gagged by materialism. And like drug addicts, we pathetically think our only hope lies in getting more of the same. Meanwhile, the voice of God, unheard amid the clamor of our possessions, is telling us that even if materialism did bring happiness in this life, which it clearly does not, 
it would leave us woefully unprepared for the next life. Possessions. Second P, position. Verses 12 through 13. The tax collectors, right? Did you catch this? The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Are you ever tempted to abuse the position that you're in to take more from others than you should or to be unethical in your financial dealings? You know, this was a problem for the Jewish tax collectors who were hated by their fellow Jews because they were working for the Romans, collecting these unfair taxes often and then giving them to the Romans. And so these Jewish tax collectors started to skim some off the top and the more hated they became, the more they skimmed off the top because they started to care less about what their fellow Jews thought about them. And they became very wealthy. People like Zacchaeus, who you might know of from the New Testament. For us, though, and we probably don't have any tax collectors in here, but it might relate more to how we do our taxes, right? Do we do our taxes with integrity? Do we actually put down everything that we've earned? Or it might be to do with how we pay people. Do we pay people fairly and what they deserve? Do we pay them on time for the work they do for us? Or uh, it might be that we need to not overcharge for our own services. Christians are to be just in their transactions with others. Third P is power. Possessions, position, and power. Look at verse 14. Soldiers also asked him, and what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. I wonder if you're ever tempted to use authority to abuse others for your own gain. Maybe you've been given some authority. Now, this was an issue for these soldiers, probably the soldiers of Herod, I'm guessing, not Roman soldiers at this stage anyway. And these were guys who've been given some power, but probably not a great wage to live on. And so with this power, they could actually use it to gain more wealth. They could potentially threaten people and say, look, if you don't give me X, I will have you thrown in jail for no particular reason. I'll trump up some charge against you and you'll have to stay there. But maybe in our society, maybe it's the case you're the boss of a company or you have authority over others at work or maybe at school. You know, with that authority, you can use that for good or you can use it for evil. You have a choice to make, right? And John the Baptist would say that the, the solution to doing good in that situation is being content with what you have, particularly with our wealth, but in other ways as well. Be content with what God has given you. Don't be coveting what others have. So possessions, position, and power. John gives three very practical ways that we can actually live out our faith once we've repented and show that there's fruit, that our repentance is genuine. How we handle these things reveals a lot. So as we come to a close, just what are we to make of all this? You know, a basic part of being a follower of Jesus, and I said this last week, is being a generous, regular, and cheerful giver to God, but also to others. To God, but also to others. You know, for Melissa and I, this means that the first 10% that we earn, that's, uh, someone asked me this week, that's pre-tax, not post-tax, okay? In case you're wondering, as John Burwell used to say, our former rector, do you want a pre-tax or a post-tax blessing? <laughs> but it's pre-tax, not post-tax. That first 10% goes to the Lord. That's who we give it to. And that's a significant sum. It's not necessarily easy doing that, right? And then, out of the rest of our money, we give to other things. So we give to God, and then we give to others. And I would encourage you to think about that in your own life. Is that something you have a practice of? Are you tithing with that 10% or even more? It could be more. 
but begin with the 10. And then out of the rest, give to others as well. So we'll sponsor children, we'll give to other charities, and so on and so forth, out of the rest of our income. Kent Hughes gives us a biblical test to check our spiritual health. He says this, Do we want to have an accurate evaluation of the state of our spirituality? Here are some biblical tests. Are we generous with our possessions? Do we share our homes, our cars, our clothing, our food with others joyfully? Or are we loath to share? Do we always push for more and then grasp it tightly? Do we enjoy giving to family, friends, and more significantly, those in need? Do we give regularly and sacrificially to the Lord? If you are a Christian but do not give regularly to the Lord, if you are tight, if you find it difficult to give to God, you are in spiritual trouble, and possibly you are not even a Christian at all. It reminds me of that question that I sometimes hear posed. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And particularly if they were to delve into your financial records, go look at your bank account and your giving, would they say, oh yeah, this person's clearly a believer. Look how generous they are towards the Lord and towards others. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would your bank account reveal it? Would your behavior reveal it? You see, I think for many of us, our stumbling comes down to trust and control. We don't necessarily believe that God will provide for us. We don't trust him that he will. And so we want to keep control just in case. Just in case. I want to keep control of this. And even when we give, we decide, well, I'll give to this thing, but it's got to be very specific. I can't give more generally to the Lord. I have to give and be in control. You know, as scripture proves to us, God always provides. He always provides. Look at our Old Testament story about Abraham, right? He's up on a mountain with his son. He's been told to kill his, to sacrifice his son, and God provides a ram for the sacrifice. He provides right there. And 2,000 years later, God provides his own son to die on a cross, to pay the price for our sin, to provide for the greatest need that you and I ever have that we will never be able to meet by no amount of hard work or effort. Only by his gift are we saved, only by his provision. And yet we still doubt that he will provide every penny that we need to live, every penny. That's how good he is. That's how much he loves us. What more do we need? We are to start giving generously and living ethically. And we are to ask God to help us bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are so generous that you gave your only son to die for us. The greatest thing that anyone could ever give. And that because of that, we know that you will always provide for us. Lord, would you break down this idol of wealth and money in our culture? Lord, would you tear it apart? Would you help to just flip on its head what's going on in our society, and particularly in these neighborhoods that we live in, where it is raised up as a marker of success and a marker of having stability and security, Lord? Only those things are found in you, only in you, Lord Jesus. And all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own do we give you. Help us to become generous in our giving and help us to live ethically in the realm of finances. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.